Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter of James, Wisdom for Wholeness. Here, James uses Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as teaching from his own half-brother Jesus, to call the church throughout the age to a life wholly devoted to God. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people complete in him. How are we doing with James 1 so far? We've finished up James 1. How are we doing with the material that we've moved through? It is not okay to be like, okay, we got that sermon out of the way, and we got to go to the next sermon, we got to the next sermon. We don't do expository preaching because we have to figure out a way to preach through the text. It's not just a way to do it. It is because we are asking of the text what God wants us to know, and we want it to then change us so that we can look more like the image of his dear son, Jesus Christ. I ask you that because we've had a lot of very specific teaching. So, you're not off the hook. How are we doing with visiting the orphans and the widows, those who are helpless? How are you doing keeping yourself unstained from the world? Are you putting yourself in the right place to receive the word of God over and over again? Are you a hearer only or are you a doer of God's word? I jump into this because I think it's easy for us to hear this sermon and then think about it and think maybe talk about it a little bit and then move on to the next one. There's so much going on. We are not preaching through James so that we can have something to do. We are preaching through James so that it might change us and make us look more like Jesus. So my admonition and loving pep talk to you is not go do more. It's go look at the text and let it change you and think about these things so that we might be more like Jesus. We'll be reading this morning from, uh, we're going to start in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1, then I'm going to read verse 22 and 27, and then we're eventually going to get to our text today, which is 2, 1 through 7. That's a little bit strange. The reason I'm doing this, if you remember, there's three major themes through the book of James. We have steadfastness, we have wisdom, and then we're going to have this sin and problem of partiality. So we know all those three things that are happening. What I want to do, though, for us, instead of reading the entirety of chapter 1, which we could do, I'm going to spot read and get us through here so we are remembering the right things as it puts into context what he's about to say. So I'm going to read these. You can look at at your text, but what I would like you to do is specifically listen to the first part, and then you'll be able to follow along quite easily once we get to 2 verse 1. So let me read 1 through 9 through 11, 22, 27. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, ah, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, "Ah, you stand over there, sit down at my feet. 
Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs in the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the riches, excuse me, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? This is our reading. Let's pray. God, would you prepare our hearts to hear the word? You have called us to worship you. You have called us to make others aware that you are worthy of worship, both by our words and by our life. We ask this morning as the preaching of the word goes forth that you would open our hearts to change, that we would not say, glad I sat through another sermon, I've done what I need to do to worship you, and now I go on with the rest of my afternoon, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all the way through the week. And then I have to come back and do this again. But God, would you rather open our hearts so that we may receive your word, the implanted word, with meekness as poor souls who need you? Would you give us perspective and wisdom? Would you give us faith to believe? We need you this morning, so we cry out to you, asking that you would show us who you are and what you're doing. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We started out by reminding ourselves that there are the three major themes throughout the text of James. We have steadfastness, we have wisdom, we have partiality. In a literary work, this is a letter, this is a, we talk about this as a homily or a sermon written to these people, it's helpful for us to kind of make organizational patterns. It's helpful for us to point out these three major themes, right? It helps us kind of get some signposts to look for and, oh, this kind of comes up again and again. That, and when we get to today's text, text, it's really not hard to see. The whole thing is about the sin of partiality. We're not going to miss that. It's clear that James' audience was sinning in the area of discrimination, of this idea of partiality and favoritism. I'm not going to have to convince you that that's what's going on. But as we work through the text today, we are going to notice some other major and minor themes that are popping up. Some of the stuff that we've already seen before, only in, in chapter one alone. The keen reader will notice the lordship of Jesus Christ. He'll notice double-mindedness. He'll notice the electing power of God, the importance of true faith, the uh, commitment to a loving God and to loving God with your heart, soul, and mind. He'll notice the foolishness of the world, the wisdom of God, and, and like a God-like perspective. He'll notice the virtue of coming to God with empty spiritual hands, poor. It's my job to help us make these observations, right? That's what I'm trying to do each week in, week out. But I don't want you to think that you're off the hook either. It's okay when you read that you get distracted by stuff that you've already seen. You should be making some of these connections like, hey, he said something like this before. I think it might have been in chapter one. That's good. That's what you should be doing. That's what it means to be a good reader, a good hearer of the word, one who is being washed over and over and the renewing of your mind is happening because you're thinking about the scriptures. So when we, we do this today, some of the small different connections should come to you and say, oh, that's been here. If you've been either reading in James or you've been here in our sermon series so far. So what I'm going to try to do here is help us walk through this text. Today we're going to cover one through seven. In verse 1, as chapter 2 begins, we're going to start with a command, an imperative. You must not hold the faith with partiality or favoritism. 
That's how his whole thing starts here in verse 1. Now, we've got this command. What are we supposed to do with it? What does partiality mean, James? Glad you asked. Verses 2 and 3 are going to give us an example of partiality. Probably it's a hypothetical situation that is rooted in real-life experience, something that they're very aware of what's going on. Okay, but you've described 2 and 3. You've given us an example of what it means to be partial, but we don't get why it's a problem. Like uh, We don't see the big deal. Verse 4 is a commentary on these actions. He's showing you and describing in verses 2 and 3 what's going on, and now James is helping us understand and making it clear that this is a real problem and that whether you know it or not, your actions are showing that you are anti-God. By your actions, you're showing that you're anti-God. We get to verse 5 through 13, and James is going to give us three reasons why they ought not to be partial. Now, James makes a clear distinction between 7 and 8. You're probably going to see it in your English Bible there. It looks like a separate paragraph. The reason that is is he is going to spend a lot more time expanding the third reason. We're going to take an entire Sunday next week and work from 8 to 13 to help us understand. Because I do think that when he brings us out, it's foundational to understanding how he shows love to others and what Jesus meant when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. These things are going to tie back to that. So we'll take next week and work on 8 through 13. But for today, we'll work through 1 through 7. So let's look at 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, we need to read this a little bit differently than I just did. I put a strong emphasis on what seems to be the main verb, right? To show no partiality. However, the original Greek text here doesn't even contain the word to show at all. Now, you shouldn't be alarmed by that. It doesn't mean that you have a bad text in front of you or though that the, the translators were liars. They helped us with a smoothing out of a very difficult reading, and this does make sense. So if that's true, why am I making a point of it? One word, emphasis. Helping us see our context, the emphasis that he is bringing here. As we've discussed before, James gets labeled often as the guy who is all about doing and not the guy that's about believing. Paul's that guy. He's about trusting and grace and all of the Lord. But James seems to be about this guy that's all about doing, his works. And even to the point where he says, you're justified by your works. Whew, he's that guy. But let's take James for all of his writing, not just what we want him to write or what we think about his writing. This verse here is not about controlling the way that you show partiality. The main verb here is actually that second part, to hold. That's the imperative, to hold the faith. Let me give you like a little bit of a different reading. I want you to listen. It's a little clunky, so you'll understand probably later why they smoothed it out and make it a little easier. But let me, I want you to see how he structures the sentence. He says this, my brothers, not in partiality, you must hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ of glory. His emphasis is clear all on this new topic about partiality. He's brought it to the front of the sentence, not in partiality. You must hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ of glory. He, he says the first thing, my brothers, kind of like this introduction, my brothers, and then the first thing he says is not in partiality. Why does he do this? Why doesn't he just say, my brothers, you must not show partiality. Stop showing partiality. What is the basis for this command? Why would he add all this extra stuff? What's the imperative? And why would he have this imperative to hold the faith of Jesus? I go back to the first thing I asked. Why would I point out the word show 
And it's not actually used by James. One word, emphasis. Our emphasis. Our understanding of the text. James is not here to tell us that the center of Christian life is the act of not being partial. That's not the center of this. So it's something to do. And if you do that, you got it. You're a Christian. Rather, you and I know the center of Christian life is faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Lord of glory. This passage, then, is all commentary on that truth. It's all commentary on the fact that Jesus Christ is King and Lord of all and glorious. All the rest of this passage here is all about commentary on that and how to do that correctly. James is not here again telling us that showing no partiality is the basis for doing the right things in your life. For the second and final time, we saw it back in verse 1, but second the final time in this letter, James will use the title Lord Jesus Christ so that we all know who and what we are talking about. It is not random faith. Instead, we, are not, we, we see ourselves not as a cult or as a religious bunch of do-gooders or a group of moral people excited about doing right till the stars fall. Our communion with Christ and with each other is based on the fact that God has reached into our hopeless situation and provided a substitute for us and has paid the ransom price, the one that none of us could ever pay and live. That Jesus, the Lord, right? So we have the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of the Old Testament stacked up in that one word. We have Jesus, who we know the Savior, the historical Jesus of Nazareth. We have Christ, who is the Messiah, who fulfills all of these promises that lead us now to Jesus, coming from the virgin conceiving, the one who has fulfilled every promise of the Old Testament, who is then of glory, the Lord of glory, one who has honor and glory from the sufferings of his death, we find out in Hebrews. This is the person that we're talking about. He, by that title alone, he brings in all of that theology. All of that we should ought to then assume is true. That's the, 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 the pushing point here. That's where we start. We don't start with showing a partiality. We start with you must hold the, the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ of glory. How then do we partake in this, like we talked about before, through faith? That's why he makes this important. When we say this, this, I don't know that we, we totally think about all that encompasses this. We all know, if we're around Christianity, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes, whoever trusts, whoever faiths in him should not perish but have eternal life. James is referring to the gospel. He's talking about faith in Christ. I, I don't want us to miss this at all. In the midst of this very specific teaching on partiality, uh, I don't want us to miss this. In fact, James doesn't miss it. He's the one that highlights it. He's the one that makes sure that we understand what is the basis for our not showing partiality. James is all about getting the gospel right. Now, we ask next, what do you mean then by partiality? What is this partiality? Can you clarify for us? Let's look at two and three. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. You've got this scenario 
where two very different-looking people come into this congregation, into this gathering of some sort. We don't know if they're believers. We don't know if they're new converts, if they've been there before. We're not exactly sure what happens. They, they may be brand new. They may be believers. They may not be believers. We don't know. And let me just give you a clue. It's not important. This isn't about who's a believer and who's not a believer and how you should treat them. This is about something much larger. This is about partiality. James is not concerned with worship service formalities, how we ought to usher people down the aisles, how we ought to have every seat be a good seat. That's not what he's saying at all. What he is concerned with is the heart, and that's where he's getting. The important part of what the church does with these two people is what he's trying to get at. One, they show honor. They give up their seat even possibly. They put them over in a nice spot. The other, they just don't care. They say, go stand over there. The, the, the phrase almost comes off like, oh yeah, and you, you can stand over there. Or if you want to sit at my footstool, that's fine too. I don't, I don't really care. Which is the, kind of the sentiment we're supposed to get. We have taken time out of our schedules and even maybe of our own accord moved our, our Bibles and our place for them to sit there. Whereas the other guy, we don't really care where they go. That's fine. You can sit wherever. What he has just described is a real problem. We find this out in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? There are two problems here that James says that with, with 2 and 3. What you've done here, you've got two problems. First, you've made distinctions among yourselves. And second, you've become judges with evil thoughts. There's some interesting wordplay here that I, I want to give you a little bit of a background when, when we read verse 2 and 3, it's pretty clear that they're making distinctions, right? It's, it's, I don't know why he would restate this. It seems like what James is doing in his commentary on this is restating the obvious thing. Uh, what we don't see is the word that James uses, again in Greek, for making distinctions. This is, I, when, it, when it caught me this week, I was like, whoa, James, you are cool. You're like, you're a good writer, because he uses the same word that we find back in chapter 1, verse 6. He says this. It's the idea of doubting or wavering. Let me read it to you. Think about doubting and wavering. Verse 6 says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The choice of this word is no accident. James didn't mistakenly come across the same word. He's driving us back to one of those key ideas of us lacking in nothing and being complete, being whole, being perfect as his father is perfect. James is telling us the one who shows partiality in his faith is wavering, is doubting. He's like a double-minded man. He is not wholly devoted to God alone, and therefore he is not whole. He is not perfect. He is not mature in Christ. The reading might be a little bit better like this. Are you not inconsistent within yourselves? You seem like you're wavering. You have doubts. And it almost shows that you're going back to this idea of not being steadfast in Christ and trusting Him alone. Rather, you have doubt. So the first problem here is that the scenario is that these people show themselves to be doubters or double-minded people. The second thing, though, that he points out is that they have become judges with evil thoughts. It's a really nasty way to talk about people. <laughs> but they become judges. They point, he points a finger back to them. 
but that's not enough, with evil thoughts. In other words, this idea of evil thoughts is what categorizes these judges. It is like descriptive of who they are. It doesn't define them, but it describes all about what they're doing. Simply, these Christians have put themselves in the place to judge others, and they do not do so with justice, righteousness, or mercy, but rather they do this by evil standards, their own evil thoughts. When a Christian is partial, he sets himself up as a judge, and when he does so, not by God's standards, he is doing so by evil thoughts. That's the commentary. When you're partial, this is what you're doing. Yikes. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers. We've seen something like this before, this imperative with the my beloved brothers after to get our attention. This is like him, him saying, I'll give you some personal, loving, collar-grabbing discussion. We need to talk. This is really important. Pay attention. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? In these verses now, he's going to give us two examples of what went wrong. Or I would say two reasons why we ought not to be partial. First, he's showing us that you haven't properly considered the spiritual realities or the perspective of God. We haven't considered wisdom. Second is that we haven't considered the earthly realities. We're totally blinded to what's actually going on around us. That our evil thoughts and our downfalls, we, we can't even see what's actually going on around us. Both of these judgments exemplify just how bad we are as evil judges when we show partiality. The first reason. The first reason that Christians ought not to be partial is that God has chosen, don't miss that word, has chosen to honor the poor. But the Christians here have chosen to dishonor the poor. It's black and white. They're acting against what God would do. He has chosen them to be rich in faith, to be kingdom heirs. And what do we do? Instead, when we're partial, we instead dishonor this same person. It's the exact opposite of what God is doing. His point in here is like, you need to wake up. What you're doing is against God. He doesn't see these, person, these people this way. You do. You're acting the exact opposite way of God. I want to bring your attention to this first phrase because it's very important that he adds this. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world? He doesn't just say poor. Why is this important? If you go back to 27, verse 27 of chapter 1, take a look. I'll read it. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Same word here. We're talking about the same thing. James is referring us back to this worldly system that he referenced in 127. The very thing that James tells us, don't be stained by this. This world is evil. The way it thinks, the way it uh, has perspective on things. You ought not to be stained by this world. Their actions show that they have indeed been stained by the world. What he just told them not to do. They see this person as poor. And yet God, what does he do? God chooses this person to be rich in faith, in the realm of 
faith and heirs of the kingdom, God in his electing love has drawn men and women throughout the ages in completely impartial ways. He is not a God of partiality. He has predestined and drawn those whom he desires to save for his own purpose, not because they're rich or poor, not because they're great or smart or any of those things, for his own purposes. Listen for a moment as we get an idea from Moses about who God is. Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 19. Clue in on his character, specifically how we're talking about partiality. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. James' admonition is not based on some arbitrary rule, as though God made up 613 commands that just seemed good to him. Like, yeah, these will be good. We'll have him keep these. Rather, his whole point in this is that this comes from the character of God himself. That helps us also understand, by the way, church, that all the rules that we know to be true about God are centered in God, not some arbitrary decision about rulemaking. That's why David can say, your law is sweet to me. That's so goofy to us. Like, we don't want to read the laws of our land and say, oh, they are sweet to us. That's because they do not come out of the character of God himself. The reason that's so spectacular is because we know God through his law. Because he tells us about who he is. He commands us to be a certain way because he is a certain way. And so we can say with David, we love your law. It shows us who you are and we glory in that. And so we, are, we ought to be the same way. It's not the arbitrary rule, but rather it's consistent with his very character. And so we not, ought not, not, not to be impartial. Partial, excuse me. He refers both generally to the poor, right? Because since God certainly looked to relieve the poor several times throughout history, we see that, and lowly throughout the ages. But in a very specific way, he does something greater. He shows that the poor Christians should be treated with honor since they are rich in faith, since they are heirs of the kingdom of God. To be sure, just being poor doesn't make you a Christian. That's not the criteria for one who is saved. God doesn't look upon them and say, ah, oh, they're poor, they're in. That's not having anything to do with it. Look at the next phrase. Which he has promised to those who love him. Being poor is not the answer. The promise of eternal life, or I'd even say, he says earlier, the crown of life, that is, being a part of God's kingdom, is only true for those who love him. We saw this back in James 1.12. You want to look or I'll just read it. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Exact same statement here. Again, we shouldn't be surprised that James keeps on going back to the first and greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Being poor doesn't save you. Being impartial doesn't even save you. That's not the point. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind is that which brings life. And only faith in that God will bring you life. Otherwise, you don't get the promise. So again, it's helpful for us to hear and, and, to, and to think about the fact that James is not saying, if you're poor, you're into the kingdom. If you're rich, you're out of the kingdom. 
if you're a Bible reader at all, you know that we'd have some major problems if wealth kept you from that exclusively. What about Job? Probably like the richest man in the entire region. Abraham. We have jo- Joseph of Arimathea. You have Levi the tax collector. You even have Zacchaeus. All these people being called in the midst of great wealth. So I just want us to be careful here. We are not saying rich equals death and you're not into God's kingdom. Poor, you're automatically in. That's a twisting of the scriptures. We see that in some forms of theology. Don't believe that. That's not true. That's not what the Bible says. It's pretty black and white. That's not what he's saying. And the other rest of scriptures help us to understand that's not what he's saying. So we shouldn't go there. The first reason we shouldn't be partial is that we haven't properly considered these spiritual realities that God has chosen these people to be rich in faith. The second, though, that James gives us is that we haven't properly considered the earthly realities. Look at verse 6. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Guys, your conclusions about generalizing the rich and placing them at places of honor doesn't even make sense with your experience. Think what they're doing. The rich people are the ones who have abused you, and they've used you in society. They have generally oppressed and dragged you and legally taken your lands from you. They have used you and exploited your poorness. Remember, guys, that the exploitation of the poor is not a new thing in in our era. This has been going on in all of history. It's not just now or just in James' day. All of us are familiar with the accusation that against rich people who have the best lawyers and who can get away with anything if their money can buy the lawyer. We live in a much more friendly and free country, but that doesn't mean that we are free from this reality. James reminds his listeners of their own experience. They have been oppressed, dragged into court to their detriment. Who has the time and money to fight a big legal battle? The rich, that's who. They're the ones who can afford it, and they'll wear them down. Unfortunately, though, that's not okay. <laughs> Unfortunately for these guys. That's not all. There's more than just the socioeconomic battle that's going on here. James points out that the rich are blaspheming the honorable name by which they're called. Who's that? You don't use the word blasphemy lightly. We're talking about the name of Jesus Christ. They are blaspheming this name. Christians, you are experiencing oppression and exploitation, and the name of your Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, is being blasphemed. Do you now have reason enough to stop this ludicrous partiality? Yes, you do. You understand now the spiritual realities, wisdom, God's perspective, His choosing, showing us that partiality is folly. And then now you've got your own experiences showing you as oppression, exploitation, serious slander and blasphemy that show us that partiality is evil and it is foolishness. Next week we're going to come back to the third reason and we'll see why this is going to be one more big one. But for now, James has made us aware of this major problem and shown us why we shouldn't do this. He shows us this major problem that we should not continue this for those who hold fast to the faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Our question for today then, what do we do with this message? If you look behind you or underneath your seats, you don't see homeless people. We don't have like a VIP box for special people who have nice cars and dress really nicely. That's not something that we're struggling with exactly. James' scenario in verse 2 and 3 doesn't really happen in our church. We must, maybe we're, we're better than that. 
maybe that doesn't exactly apply to us and it's not that helpful for us and it surely isn't for us. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is for us. Whether you know it or not, whether you think that it matches up with our experience, this is for us. We have the same problem here. James is using a very real problem in the church to highlight a problem in the heart. Something that's going on here, not just about the pews and where people sit. He does this really well. He shows that the real fruit often doesn't really match the said convictions of the person. You say that you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ of glory, but you're stained by the world. You do this from what God says. You're acting as judges with evil standards. You are blinded to even the physical realities of oppression, exploitation, and verbal blasphemy. The real problem isn't just the treatment of the rich and the poor. That is certainly the main application in James' scenario as he's talking to these congregations. But the real problem is that you are making decisions based on your own criteria. You then are the Lord of your life, not Jesus. Again, pointing us back to verse 1, holding the faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This is the real issue here. You haven't given a good seat to everyone who comes through the door. Instead, you've taken it upon yourself to judge who you should love and who you shouldn't love. Who makes a difference to you and you'd give up your seat for someone and who you don't really care about. If I can put it in the terms of a certain teacher of the law that we've just read this morning, who knows the greatest commandments, number one and two, who's my neighbor? They're asking this question and they're actually going a step further than that when they show partiality. And so are we. We're not just asking the question that Jordan highlighted, who is my neighbor? We've answered it. And we've said, the rich people are my neighbor. I'll give up and look good and, and help them and be partial to them. The rest, I don't really care. You can sit at my footstool or you can sit in the back. or I don't, I don't care, that's fine. No problem, where do you want to go? Like it doesn't matter to them. Like they're not showing love. Like they're not going out and esteeming someone else better than themselves. This is partiality. Do you realize that this issue of partiality is the same issue that Jesus is confronting with the Pharisees? Well, I thought James was about the other side of this, like I need to do more. The same problem is going on right here. That They're asking that question, answering it, and totally just putting away part of the population if they don't have to love them. When a person shows partiality, they have elevated themselves above their own master, and they have disregarded his character. We, told, we already said this comes out of the character that God is not moved by a bribe, and he is impartial. They are then hearers only, not doers. They have not received with meekness the implanted word. They have not visited the orphans and the widows, and they have not kept themselves unstained from the world. All this gets shown by your partiality. Church, if we show any kind of partiality, or let me say that again, if we actually have any partiality in our hearts, we're convicted of all this stuff. What kind of partiality do you struggle with? I can't tell you. I don't know. I may be able to see some of it, but you know much better than I do what you actually struggle with. Some of you actually do struggle with uh, putting preference towards rich people. Some of you actually may be the exact opposite. 
And you hate some of the rich people and say, oh, those stupid rich people. And you actually give preference to the poor people. It's the same problem, guys. Do you give preference to the poor? Do you give preference to white people? Even unknowingly. Do you give preference to good-looking or beautiful people? Do you give preference to clean people? They may not look exactly like me. I like the ones that are clean. Do you give preference to those that are witty or smart or socially interesting? Or do you give uh, preference to those who are elite? How about those who you easily get along with compared to those that you don't get easily along with? The awkward people, the hard people to talk to, the hard people to love, who they never seem to get back to me the right way or understand my givingness. Don't they know I'm trying to love them? Do you see the heart there, guys? Do you see our partiality so easily? We just do what we want to do instead of what Jesus did, which is to love the world? Cornerstone, this is for us. We have partiality. And it's a very simple message. I, sit, I preach this to myself. Repent. Stop this. We must not be partial. We cannot continue this because it goes exactly against what God has told us to do and who he is. We have become then stained by the world. So, by grace, let us repent and change and trust God and ask him to make our hearts to love the world that we have been given to, to be a light to them and to love our brothers and those that are not yet brothers, who are unbelievers. That is our calling here in this passage, to not be partial as to who we choose to do right and wrong to and to love, but instead to love the world. Let us repent and show Jesus Christ to the world who is the Lord of glory and not with any sort of partiality. Let's pray. God, we come to you asking that you would change our hearts. James shows us, he opens it up and says, you've got a deep-rooted problem. You choose to judge on your own evil thoughts. You waver like this this person that doubts in chapter 1, verse 6, where we realize that we're double-minded. God, we don't want to be double-minded. God, we don't want to be one that is judging according to evil thoughts. We want to be people that are whole and and centered on you and single-minded in our devotion to Jesus Christ alone. We love you and ask that you would change our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For other sermons on the book of James and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.